Thanks for joining me for the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. Quick announcement before we get to today's episode. The next run of the WellStart Health Coach Training Academy program begins in October 2022. If you would like to become a health coach or you're already a health coach and you'd like to learn some new techniques and raise your game, or if you are a lifestyle medicine practitioner, an MD, a nutritionist, dietitian, PT, and you'd like to learn skills to help your clients and patients implement what they have learned from you, or if you just want to help the people around you eat better, live better, feel better, get better, then check out wellstartcoach.com. So I realized that I have this thing about principles that can really get me hung up and quite ineffective. It's like a need to be right rather than a need to get things done and achieve what I want to achieve. And I was noticing that as I was reading the book by today's guest, Paul Shapiro, the book is called Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner and the World. And I kept thinking, like, why do we need to create all these expensive, complex analogs when we can just get people like do the right thing. And in the conversation, I, un- I began to understand why <laughs> that's not going to happen. And as much as I have a distrust of capitalism, of vast sums of money, of new technologies that get us away from Mother Earth, I do have to admit that by the end of the conversation, I was pretty convinced that if we want to solve the problems that animal agriculture causes from incredible cruelty and suffering to climate change to degradation of natural resources, that we are absolutely going to need to give people something to eat that is just like meat that isn't meat, that doesn't come from animals and can be produced in a much better way. And so that's the conversation that I'm going to share with you right now. Paul Shapiro is um, an author. He's an entrepreneur and he's a real fun conversationalist. So I hope you really enjoy it. Without further ado, Paul Shapiro, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Howie, how are you doing? Giving you a fist bump from Sacramento, my friend. All right, Sacramento. So this is this is er still early for you. Oh, uh, you know, it's like around nine thirty in the morning, so it's not that early. Uh, I've been, uh, I've been up for a while. Actually, you know, to be honest with you, I've been up for a long time because, uh, very sadly, my wife's and my dog had a had to have very he had to blew out his knee and had to have a surgery, oh, no. and so he came home yesterday. And last night, this poor dog was like really in pain from his surgery, and the painkillers were not sufficient for him, and so he was crying a lot. So I didn't really even, you know, what is early for me was like yesterday for him. By now, after oh. after that, gotcha. yeah, but. Uh, but he's he's my best friend, so to see him suffer is very sad. But it's very good for him because he will be uh, up and running again in the near future. So I'm very happy that he got the surgery. Nice, nice. And it's an interesting you know, framing of our conversation where a- anyone listening to this, no matter what their life philosophy, presumably understands that you feel bad when your dog feels pain. Yes. Right. And uh, so par- partly what we're going to talk about is movements, technological movements to kind of help us extend that compassion to uh, to other sentient beings who arguably might just be as, you know, intelligent and loyal and capable of of emotional range as dogs. Couldn't agree with you more, Howie. So, so Paul Shapiro, who, who are you? Where'd you come from? 
Well, I guess who I am, Howie, uh, really depends is you're asking like my mother or my wife, since I think that the two of them might have pretty different ways of describing me. But I guess the way I would describe myself is somebody who for many decades has been uh, intensely interested in figuring out the best ways to reduce the amount of suffering on the planet. And it turns out that a huge volume of the suffering is endured by animals. And I have been very concerned about the treatment of animals for my whole life. When I was a kid, my mom worked at a local animal shelter. We had uh, adopted dogs my whole youth. And, you know, I viewed these dogs really as like my siblings. I didn't view them as pieces of property in the same way that like the law views them. I viewed them as my siblings. In fact, I would say that mm. there are probably times uh, in my youth where I loved our dogs more than some of my biological family members. So, um, you know, for me, like I just started thinking as I became an early teenager about how our treatment of animals would look to us if they were all dogs. So how would it look if we treated pigs, or excuse me, if we treated dogs the way that we treated pigs, or we treated, if we treated dogs the way that we treat chickens, as an example? And it became very clear to me that the disconnect there is on our side, that it's how we view these animals. There's not really a, a big difference in a pig and a dog. They both are um, comparably intelligent mammals who um, you know, have uh, social bonds and can plan for the future and so on. Uh, but the difference is how we view them. And so I started thinking as I would watch uh, videos of what happens in slaughterhouses and factory farms, you know, if those were my dogs, what would I do? And of course the answer was there is nothing I wouldn't do to stop that. If my dog were locked in a cage so small that he couldn't even turn around for his entire life, I mean, that's what we do to pigs. Um, and so I, um, I became a vegetarian, and then pretty quickly thereafter, I became a vegan. It was back in 1993, and uh, I it was when I entered high school, I realized like there was no animal rights club or anything there, and so I started one. It's called Compassion Over Killing. I ran that um, as a first as a club, and then as a citywide organization in Washington D.C., and then eventually as a national organization for um, about a decade through high school and college, and then for several years after college. Um, I worked there full time. And uh, around 2005, I ended up uh, leaving the organization, Compassion Over Killing, to go to the Humane Society, where I worked for uh, nearly a decade and a half to enact various policies to improve the lives of farm animals. And I became very concerned, um, really, like uh, starting around like 2013, 2014, and 15, that it was possible that food technology was going to do more to alleviate animal suffering than what I was doing. And don't get me wrong, I think it's really important to enact laws to improve the treatment of animals, to make it, you know, we need those laws. I think we need more, not less, obviously. Um, but when I started looking at ways that other categories of animal exploitation have been ended in the past, it became clear to me that new technologies were far more responsible than was humane sentiment. And so I ended up exploring this concept by uh, writing a book. And as you kindly mentioned, the book is called Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner in the World. And that book really chronicles the entrepreneurs, the scientists, and the investors who, all, who are all racing to commercialize the world's first slaughter-free meat. And so we can talk more about that. But um, when the book came out, it, it did uh, better than I had anticipated and it opened up a lot of opportunities for me. And one thing led to another, and um, after I concluded the book tour for Clean Meat, I had a choice that I would either continue writing about the people who I thought were going to solve this problem, 
or I could become one of them myself. And I chose the latter. And so I started a company called The Better Meat Co., which utilizes fermentation to turn microbes into foods that really look like animal meat, except with uh, very little footprint on the planet and on animals, and of course, much better for public health as well. And so I've been running that company for the last four years, and I'm uh, still, of course, very eager to talk about the book, uh, Clean Meat, which uh, continues to go into printing after printing, and I'm very proud to say that it's been translated into seven other languages now. And um, the book continues to, I hope, inspire people to get involved in this field to see what they can do to put their ore in the water to create a better food system for all of us, both human and non-human included. Mm, great. So before we before we get to that, I'm, I want to pull on a couple of threads from from your story because I find it so interesting. Um, so it says you became vegetarian and vegan over time and you, you come from a family in which animal welfare was front and center. Uh, first of all, I'm curious, like what what the conversations were like as you were making that shift. <laughs> obviously, you know, you started from a different place. Think, you know, whatever I don't know, whatever you ate, chicken or beef, yeah, right? Um, like, what was that like? Um, yeah, it, you know, but this was back in 1993 again, so there wasn't as much awareness about plant based eating as there is today. So, despite the fact that my mom at that time, of course, was working at an animal shelter, you know. Um, while she loved all animals, it didn't really extend to her diet. And it, it, it was just like um, she loved animals who were in front of her, um, but not necessarily. It, it didn't translate into necessarily making different dietary choices at that time. Today, it's a totally different story. But at that time, it didn't. And so uh, I remember when I became vegetarian, you know, they knew that there were vegetarians. They knew Einstein was a vegetarian. They, they knew about vegetarians. But after about a few weeks, I started talking about becoming a, what I thought at that time was called vegan. And I was like, you know, I, want, I think I want to be a vegan. Like, there's no internet. I didn't have any videos. Like, they were talking about this. Like, so I just saw V-E-G-A-N. I thought it was vegan. That's what I was calling it. And my mom and my father were quite displeased by this at the time. They did not think this was a healthy thing to do. Um, they kind of viewed it like maybe like holding your breath. Like, you know, you can hold your breath for a certain amount of time. But if you hold your breath for too long, you'll die. And so they kind of thought about it like that. Like, sure, you can maybe not eat any animal products for some amount of time, but if you do it for too long, you'll die. And so they brought me to a nutritionist. And, you know, at that time, they just got put out the yellow pages and found a nutritionist. So for those of you too young to know, the yellow page is kind of like Google from back in the day, but in print form. And so I put out the yellow pages and uh, found a nutritionist and we went to her and they just picked somebody who was geographically close to us. They didn't know anything about her. And almost like by like divine intervention, it was unbelievable. We got to her and lo and behold, this nutritionist in 1993 was vegan herself. And huh. so, and so, you know, that really helped to assuage some of my parents' concerns. I don't think it totally assuaged them, but it partially assuaged them. And uh, so I, um, you know, nearly 30 years later, I'm still doing it. At that time, you know, people, you know, people like to talk about how hard it was. Like when I talk to other longtime vegans, like, oh, you know, back in the day, the world was black and white. It was snowing all the time. We had to walk uphill both ways. Um, and, you know, my recollection of it was, yes, like we didn't have Beyond Burgers and Impossible Burgers, but there was some plant-based meat. You know, you had Boca Burgers, you had Morningstar, you had Tofurky. Like these companies existed back then. Now, admittedly, I, I think the newer generation does a far better job of mimicking the meat experience than these companies back then. 
but it wasn't like we were just eating rice and beans. And frankly, I'm, I'm happy to eat rice and beans too. So I, I, you know, I would not have a problem with that. Um, but there were products back then. They weren't as good as they are today. Uh, but you know, we had some good products and I, I enjoyed eating those. And I remember seeing in the news, uh, when Bill Clinton was president and he was eating Boca burgers in the white house, cause he was having heart problems and, uh, Dean Ornish had recommended this to him. And I remember thinking like, Man, like I'm eating the same burgers the president is eating. I thought it was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember a lot of those. I remember those like sunshine burgers. Oh, were... dude, I love. I still eat those today. I love the sunshine burger. That's like, that's like truly like if you were gonna like give me my choice of a burger to have, I think I would probably choose the sunshine burger. Um, there was which was my favorite flavor they, like the original one like the let's say a garden herb or There's something like southwest yeah, the southwest one is good oh yeah but they have like a full like hummus or falafel type flavor one it's it's really uh -huh. good that was my favorite one but yeah i love that i love that sunshine burger right and i remember going to boca burgers just for like cookouts like I, you know the sunshine burger is going to end up in the coals yeah the, bur the boca burger is is not as fun but you know at least you can like go toe to toe with, with everybody else. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, a sunshine burger, for those of you who aren't familiar, is barely a burger. It's a patty um, that is made of like brown rice and sunflower seeds. And like, I mean, it's like in, in no way, shape or form, tastes like meat, looks like meat, smells like meat, nothing. It's just the only thing that is comparable to a burger is that it is in a puck form. Um, but uh, I do did and do continue to love the taste of it. And it's, it's delicious. It's amazing. Um, but yeah, you bring that to a, you know, a, a barbecue and I can assure you that, you know, not many meat consumers are going to opt for it. <laughs> and certainly none of them are going to be fooled. No, uh, not even in the slightest. Uh, I mean, it's, it's like a, I would view it, almost like what they would see as like a consolation prize for the vegetarian at the party. You know, like everybody else is going to have a great time eating meat and <clears throat> here you go. You know, you get the sunshine burger. Right. Well, pizza, pizza, raw potato, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so the other thing I'm curious about, just in terms of like your career trajectory, like um, I think, I think I stalked you on LinkedIn. You went to like a, a very high powered, like, um, day school, right? For high school. To... Uh, I went to Georgetown day school. I am um, Georgetown. Yeah, day, it's yeah. in, it's in, it's in Washington, DC. And, um, it's kind of like a liberal arts college, but for uh, high school. And so it has produced a number of famous people, um, including, uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin, who was the, uh, uh -huh. the lead in the second impeachment of Donald Trump. Um, it's a member of Congress, uh, and some other, uh, really interesting, uh, people have come out of there as well. So I'm, I'm trying to do my best to, uh, to fulfill the uh, the um, the socially oriented mission that that school has. Yeah, yeah, and I was thinking about that in terms of like when you're going through it, you knew of past alums, and you kind of knew that like okay, there's opportunity here and expectations, and like in, when you were thinking about like most people when they think about their career, they're like, well, I'm not really sure, so I'll, you know, I'll probably just sort of hedge with liberal arts unless they know they you know, want to be a doctor or an engineer or something from an early age. And like, were you always like, was your compass always sort of advocacy for for animals in terms of like, do I do policy or science or whatever? Mm -hmm. Was that always kind of the yeah. rudder? I mean, ever since I was probably like 13 years old, my life has been largely in service to how I can help animals. But it's been in a variety of different ways. And the, the, 
the best way that I can describe it is that I have changed my mind from, you know, age 13 to 30 years later now over what I think are the best ways that I can help contribute to helping animals. Uh, you know, basically, humanity is waging a war against the rest of the animal kingdom. We don't like to think of it that way. We like to think of ourselves as this benign presence. Uh, in reality, though, we are causing mass extinction. We're driving thousands of species into their uh, into their earthly graves. We subject uh, tens of billions of animals to really unspeakable tortures in the food industry and elsewhere. And I don't think it has to be that way. You know, I look at, for example, how we used to believe that we were the center of the physical universe, but people like Copernicus and Galileo helped us to understand that we are no longer the center of the physical universe, but humanity still believes that we're the center of the moral universe, that we are the only species that matters. And I think mm -hmm. that as time goes by, just as we now have accepted that we aren't the center of the, of the like universal play, so to speak, that maybe we're not the center of the moral universe either, that maybe the other animals on this planet don't exist merely for us, but that they actually exist here with us. And that would lead to a very different kind of relationship with other animals. You know, right now, humanity's relationship with other animals, largely speaking, is based on violence and domination. Uh, it could be, though, that it could be based on compassion and respect. We would have to lead our lives in very different ways uh, we have essentially built our civilization on the backs of animals, either by displacing their habitats, uh, forcing them to labor under the threat of whips and other uh, violence toward them that we've done with horses and oxen and other beasts who have essentially helped us to build our civilization against their will. And so, you know, I just, I just think, though, that there are technological advances that we can make that will essentially free us from our exploitation on an, of animals. And so my the change in my opinion over the last 30 years has largely been that I used to believe that merely telling people about the problems of what we do with animals would be sufficient to change their behavior, that just raising awareness alone would somehow cause like this revelation for people. In reality, that almost never happens. The reality is that uh, meat consumption has gone up, not down in that 30 years. And not just because human population has swelled, but also because on a per person basis, we in America and in China and Brazil and Mexico and all the places where it's gonna matter the most in the future, meat demand on a per person basis is going up, not down. And so when you start thinking about like, you know, why, like awareness has never been higher and yet meat demand has never been higher. Um, and I just think it's clear that awareness is not sufficient. It's good but it's not sufficient. Mm -hmm. And so I, I've really changed my opinion about what is needed in order to uh, reduce or end our exploitation of animals. And now, so I, I thought awareness would be, you know, the thing, the best thing to do. Then I thought that passing laws would be the best thing to do. And I still think these are both great things to do. Don't get me wrong. Like I want to be clear. I think passing laws to protect animals, raising awareness about the mistreatment of animals, all of that I think is extremely critical. But I believe that if you look at past chapters of uh, the end of animal exploitative industries, never has it been due to humane sentiment. Like if you look at, for example, how we at our treatment of horses, where for thousands of years we whipped horses to force them to transport us and our goods all around. And there were lots of concerns. Like even if you look at the origins of the animal welfare movement in the United States, the ASPCA and all these other groups that were founded in the second half of the 19th century were founded because they were concerned about the treatment of horses for the most part, because horses were so flagrantly abused in city streets, like in New York and Boston and Philadelphia. And what ended up happening was these animal protectionists were campaigning for 
better treatment of horses. They wanted watering stations. They wanted uh, resting hours. They wanted Sabbath days where one day a week they couldn't be worked at all. And what ended up freeing horses, of course, was none of that. What freed horses was the invention of the car. And we stopped exploiting horses, and, and the car did way more for horses than the animal protectionists were even dreaming of. They weren't trying to free horses. They were trying to get them better conditions, which is very admirable. I support it. But uh, it was cars that ended up you know, reducing our reliance on horses. Similarly, we used to live pluck geese, and that's how we wrote pen. That's how we wrote letters was with quills. And it's a very barbaric industry. I mean, you had whole flocks of geese who were simply there just to be live plucked to to uh, satisfy the quill demand that people had. And nobody stopped live plucking geese because they cared about them. They stopped because metal fountain pens were invented. Um, and the list goes on and on. I mean, you know, just you know, we didn't stop using carrier pigeons because they might cared about them. We stopped because we had better ways to transmit information. Uh, and, and, you know, there's just so many uh, times where our abuse of animals in an industrial sense has ended because a new technology rendered it obsolete. And so I started thinking, well, what's more likely to end the factory farming of animals? Is it that people are gonna care that animals are locked in cages and therefore you know, they, they're gonna move away from this industry? Or is it that we just have better alternatives that are cheaper, that are tastier, and that are better for us? And I think the latter. And so that, um, is what I'm devoting my life to now. Maybe in the future, I'll think there's something that even better that I could be doing. I'm not sure. But for right now, I, I really have come to the conclusion that uh, technology is animals' best hope to end factory farming. Yeah. And as you point out, I think in the last chapter of Clean Meat, like that once people are liberated from the need to exploit animals, their, well, their moral compass kind of shift. It's almost like you, you remove that fake magnet and now people can get in touch with their natural compassion, right? That all of a sudden we were able to see horses as, oh, these noble beasts. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. When you're not dependent on the exploitation of a category of animals, you all of a sudden can see them in a different way. There's a lot of cognitive dissonance. So like as an example, we know how intelligent pigs are. And yet for people who eat pork, it's very difficult to accept that because it's too much cognitive dissonance. It's not that they're bad people, it's just they're human and humans don't like cognitive dissonance. When we are given a choice between rationalizing our behavior or changing our behavior, you know what we're gonna do. You know, very like unlikely that we're gonna change. We are great at rationalizing our behavior to do whatever it is that we wanna do. And uh, there's no better place uh, than with food to look at that and, and see it as an example. And so I am uh, I'm convinced that as we reduce our reliance on the exploitation of chickens and pigs, that we will view them quite differently in the same way that, as we mentioned, like, you know, people don't view horses as labor animals anymore. Like if you saw somebody whipping a horse in front of you, you would be horrified. Yet 100 years ago or 150 years ago in this country, that was the norm in every major city street. Like that's just what you saw, like you know, people just routinely whipping horses. Um, you know, similarly, if you uh, were on a boat and somebody pulled out a harpoon, you would be in shock that somebody would go out and kill a whale. You know, 150 years ago, that's what people did. That's how you lit your home was with whale oil. We didn't stop whaling because people cared about whales. We stopped whaling because kerosene was invented and it was a cheaper, cleaner way to light our homes than whale oil was. And then we stopped using kerosene because electricity was a better way to light our homes than kerosene was. And so, you know, you look at all this and it just becomes quite clear that, you know, we view whales today very differently 
than we did 150 years ago, not because they've changed, but because our perceptions have changed because we're no longer dependent on their exploitation. The same with horses and, and so on. And so I, I think that as people, you know, a lot of times people think, oh, well, let's get people to view animals differently and then they'll treat them differently. I actually think it's far more likely that we will treat them differently and therefore we will view them differently. Like there's a saying that, yeah. you know, it's easier to act your way into a new way of thinking than to think your way into a new way of acting. And that's uh, the way that I think that this will work. And, and in the last chapter of Clean Meat, as you point out, I talk about these studies where, you know, people are asked about the intelligence of cows and they separate them. And one group is given nuts to, to snack on while they're filling out the survey. And the other group is given beef jerky. Well, which group do you think thought cows were more intelligent and which do you think thought they were more dimwitted? And, you know, they're all meat consumers, but the ones who were eating beef jerky rated cows as far more dim-witted than those who were just eating nuts because of the cognitive dissonance. So, yeah, I, I think we need to reduce our reliance on animal exploitation, and then we will view them differently. Right. I mean, I, I love the quote you unearthed from Benjamin Franklin. Uh, right? Like with, yeah. with, his, with his, you know, both his, his, his wit, self-deprecation and self-justification. I just want to read. Yeah. So he's talking about why he's eating fish, even though he promises he's going to be vegetarian. And then he's like, oh, but the fish ate a fish. So I'm moral equivalent. And he goes, so convenient a thing it is to be a reasonable creature since it enables one to find or make a reason for everything one has a mind to do. Yeah. Like, oh, reasonable. Like we think of that as like a virtue. And he's like, yes. no, it's actually like our our biggest power and our biggest vice. Yeah, I, I love that quote. And I'm, I'm so glad that you brought that up, Howie. So, yeah, you know, so for background, you know, Benjamin Franklin was a big believer in vegetarianism, but he had a very hard time sticking to it, a very difficult time. And so he talks about it in his autobiography, how he's on this book. And it's really difficult for him to adhere to a vegetarian diet because he is smelling the fish that people are cooking and it smells so good to him. And so he's resisting and trying to resist. And then he notices that as they were cutting open the fish to cook them and eat them, that there were smaller fish inside of them. And so he thought, oh, well, they're doing it. They're eating each other, so I can eat them. And then he, he self-reflects and says, oh, you know, how convenient to be a rationalizing creature. And it's so true. It's so true. Um, you know, we will justify whatever we want to do, basically. I mean, even, you know, even you know, people who do horrible things typically justify it and they think of themselves as being righteous people. So um, I, you know, I just think like the human brain is just remarkably adroit at rationalizing whatever behavior. I've seen this in my own life, even things that I regretted doing that at the time I thought were, you know, were justifiable. And then in, in hindsight, I think, geez, I really was wrong about that. And, um, you know, thankfully nothing as large as going out and killing animals <laughs> like Ben Franklin is doing. But um, I really, uh, I really admire his self-reflection in that, in that yeah. particular passage of yeah. his autobiography. Yeah. So, you know, so, I mean, the basic idea of clean meat and now of your company, which we'll talk about, is that, as we've been saying, like technology, like changes in, you know, what people can eat. You know, we talk, you talk constantly about sort of price, taste and convenience. It's the three things that, that really make up our choices about pretty much, you know, everything we put in our mouths um, is that te technology is a, a way to save us. And you frame it not not so much in the book in terms of animal welfare, although that's a recurring theme, but really in terms of the existential crisis to the planet and to our species that animal agriculture has has produced. And so I want, I, 
I just want to say what like what the one of the ways my mind works is I read something and I immediately want to argue with it. Like I, and I'm not proud of that or not proud of it. I've come to accept like, okay, so I'm, I'm immediately like, as I'm going through the book, almost every sentence, I'm like, yeah, but, and then. <laughs> and bring it on, lot, Howie. Let's hear it. I would love right? to hear it. Yeah. Well, a lot, but a lot of it you answer, like you have your own yeah, buts. And, you know, you write this book as, as a journalist, pretty much, you know, bringing in different points of view, bringing in Marion Nestle, who thinks the whole thing is gross. Yeah. Um, but so, but the, like the challenge I want to make right now is like, we have this, this view, it's sort of like a realistic view. Well, human nature is, we're just going to do what's convenient, what's good for us. And obviously talking to people about ethics isn't going to move the needle. So we'd better, you know, create the capitalist marketplace has to create innovation. And, and I think about sort of indigenous cultures which have been on the planet for far longer than our civilization in which, and you said like, we can either have, you know, kindness and compassion or violence and domination. Well, a lot of them had compassion and violence, right? Right. Like, so is it, is it that it's humans or I'm almost, I almost kind of want to argue and say, is it capitalism right? or the way we've structured society that's causing us to act this way? And so in, in that case, is more capitalism the solution? Yeah it's, a, yeah, it's a great critique, Howie, and I appreciate that you raised this. So, you know, I, I will point out, like, I do think there's somewhat of a mythology about like pre-industrial humans, like hunter-gatherers, and that, um, you know, they, just as an example, um, did not cause anywhere near the type of damage that our society causes to the planet and to animals. But I'm not so sure that it's because they had a different mindset as much as they just didn't have the technological capacity to do it. So if you look, for example, when humans spread out of Africa, every continent that we arrived at, we caused massive extinctions, massive in Australia, in the Americas, in Europe, like all the so-called megafauna, the huge animals, basically, uh, you know, we cause megafaunal extinctions on every continent except for Africa when we spread out. And that's all pre-capitalism. That's all pre-civilization, pre-domestication even. Uh, that's while we're just hunter-gatherers. And, uh, you know, we also I mean, conducted uh, quite a lot of deforestation in Europe and in the Americas, all pre-agriculture, pre-industrialization. And so I'm not so sure that like the problem is, uh, you know, any type of one economic system, it's not as if like communist countries or socialist countries are much better for animals than capitalist countries are, to be honest with you. Um, I, I do think, though, that I'm not wedded to any one system of um, of reform here. And I think that we do need government regulations. So it's not just that I'm relying on the market in order to solve this problem. I think just like, I think we need a carbon tax to help combat climate change. I think we should have uh, similar policies that help to wean us off of animal agriculture, similar public policies. But when I look at the history of what has actually ended various types of uh, horrible injustices, oftentimes it is new technology. I mean, even if you look not just at uh, animal exploitation, but even if you look at slavery, like human slavery, you know, the reason why the northern states were able to peacefully abolish slavery while still having a capitalist system was largely because the industrial model that they were embracing didn't benefit from this, you know, agrarian type slavery. And so they were able to peacefully legislate against 
slavery in a way that the South wasn't because the South was way more economically dependent on slavery. And so they were literally willing to go to war to preserve this horrible institution. And um, that's yeah, I, 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 I read that and I was like, oh, like, like I, I've kind of had this mythology, you know, coming from living in the Northeast for most of my life. That like, yeah. oh, well, we, you know, we were the good guys <laughs> yeah. and, and re reading that analysis. And I, and I assume, you know, sort of a lot of your thinking comes from um, the, the forward writer for your book, Noah, Yuval Noah Harari. Yeah. Who kind of, you know, paints this picture of like. You know, we're not as great as we think we are. Like, like we, <laughs> you know, we need to be we need to be a little humble yeah. about when we think we're that we're on the right side of history. Uh, Howie, uh, you know, first of all, yes, everything you just said is right. But if there was any one line that uh, I thought would like exemplify my worldview, it is what you just said. We're not as great as we think we are. <laughs> That's pretty much it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, that that is uh, certainly the case, and. I mean, look, there was, a, you know, of course, uh, I think the North was on the right side of history compared to the South when it comes to the slavery question. But the question is why? Like, why was it geographically that the North was able to be against slavery? And it was because they weren't so dependent on that system once they were no longer an agrarian economy. It's not that surprising that in like pretty much all of the agrarian civilizations, they had slavery. The Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, they all had slavery, every one of them. Going back, you know, 2000 years, you know, even like Aristotle and Socrates, like we think of these people as being like the greatest thinkers of like the antiquity era. Right. And they were commenting on everything, every every conceivable social issue they were uh, pontificating on. Yet, you know what they never talked about or they never even questioned was slavery. They never even questioned it. Mm. Like literally never even in any of Aristotle or Socrates writings, they never even questioned. They just assumed it was this natural thing. It's in the Bible. The Egyptians had it, Greeks, Romans, like slavery was just the norm. And today, of course, we're not living in an agrarian society. And so we think, oh, well, you know, of course, slavery is this abomination. And it is. It's, you know, it's this horrible stain on, on the human history. Um, but it's easy for us to say. It's easy for us to say because we weren't dependent on it. It's easy for us to be against whaling when we have other ways to light our homes. If we were so, you know, it's almost like if you look at like Russian oil right now, like the world, you know, so much of the world is dependent on Russian oil and they want to be against it, but they're dependent on it. And so, you know, you yeah. find all these explanations, you find all these excuses. Well, you know, if the tanker is 49% Russian oil and 51% oil from somewhere else, you know, we can get like, there's all these ways that you just try to rationalize your own uh, status quo, basically, and what you're dependent on. So anyway, uh, I just think we have to find ways to uh, reduce our reliance on animals and then the change will follow. But to your point about capitalism, Howie, I will just say, you know, somehow we ended slavery without ending capitalism. Somehow women got the right to vote without ending capitalism. We abolished child labor for the most part, although it is still allowed in some agricultural sectors, which are exempt from child labor laws, really. Um, interestingly enough, to this point, by the way, um, without abolishing capitalism, uh, you know, we ended segregation, uh, we ended racial segregation, and we got voting rights all without ending capitalism. So I'm not saying I'm, you know, in favor of this system. I'm just saying it's not clear to me what system would produce better results for animals. And it's clear that lots of social progress has been made within this system. So for those who say, oh, well, the heart of the problem is capitalism, I would just ask what the evidence for that is. Like, you know, where is it better for animals and how, like, what system is that? And then if that's true, I'd love to you know, study that and figure out how we can replicate that. But I've not seen it yet. Right, right. And the, I mean, the other, I mean, the beautifully put. So I, I really appreciate the, the thought that went into responding to the challenge. Um, and the, I mean, the other, you know, 
my counter thought to my counter thought was, who cares? This is where we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we got to do something, and I I could easily I could either be the guy who's nitpicking and complaining about everything, like you know, like like sort of this this uh, armchair philosopher smelling shit everywhere. Yeah. Or I can say, well, look, these you know these people, and maybe some of them are doing it to get rich. Maybe some other some of them are doing it because they have some sort of messiah complex. Uh, maybe some of them are doing it because they don't want to lose the stranglehold on sectors of the economy that they already have, you know, like Tyson food buying 5% of beyond. But, but I'm also saying, well, who cares yeah. why they're doing it is, yeah, right. you know, and, and I even stopped asking like two thirds of the book. I just felt like the book kind of tenderized me. <laughs> way, like I, I stopped even asking like, is this a good thing or a right. bad thing? I'm like, okay, this is what's coming. Yeah. Let's learn about it. Oh, I, I so agree with you, Howie. So, I mean, let me just put it this way. For so long, it has been profitable for people to torment animals and destroy the planet. Wouldn't it be better if it was profitable to help animals on the planet? Like, why should we? Like, it's almost like you have to be like so self-sacrificial. You have to say, no, no, no. I want animals to be saved, but only if, only if people feel financial pain from it. I mean, really, like if you are sitting there in a battery cage or a gestation crate on a factory farm, your greatest hope would be that it would be profitable for somebody to save you. I mean, that would be <laughs> the best possible thing that you could imagine happening because that way it doesn't require just self-sacrifice and altruism. It actually means that you could have some enlightened self-interest to do some good in the world. So I hope that those who are investing in alternative animal-free protein technologies do get wealthy from their investments. And I hope that other investors see that and think, ah, I should be investing in that too because that will usher in a much more humane era for animals in a much faster way than if we say, no, 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 <laughs> there must only be financial pain <laughs> to, uh, to liberate animals. Uh, I mean, come on, like, you, you know, let's be realistic about human nature. Right. That reminds me of a book um, by Heather McGee called The Sum of Us, which, you know, it's about uh, systemic racism in the United States. And one of the things she argues is that let's stop talking about things that make white people feel guilty. She's a black woman writing this saying, because we're not, it doesn't matter if we're right. It doesn't matter if they've done terrible things or if they're continually racist or if they deserve it, they're not going to change <laughs> um, if, as, if, if they have to feel bad in order to do so. And that let's, let's talk about the costs mm -hmm. of racism for everyone. Yeah. Like, that, like, yeah again, it's yeah. this idea, like, Let's let's appeal to not even enlightened self-interest, but just self-interest. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a wise point. And um, I hadn't contemplated that before, but it does resonate with the way that I view things. And I mean, look, let me be clear. If being right were sufficient, animals would have been liberated long ago. Sadly, being right is not sufficient. Being effective is what actually matters. You need to be right, of course. You don't want to be effective and wrong. Obviously, that would be catastrophic. But you need to be right and you need to be effective. And what's effective is not simply just telling people what a moral atrocity is occurring and that they're responsible for it and so on. I mean, whether true or not, it's not what is necessarily going to change most people. And I can already hear like some like hardline vegan responding to this and saying, well, uh, you know, it changed me or it changed one person I know. And I just think I'd say, well, for most people, like that's anecdotal evidence, that's great. But for most people, it doesn't work. And there's a reason why nine out of 10 people who become vegetarian or vegan stop 
being vegetarian or vegan. It's not because they had this moral enlightenment and then they became passionate animal advocates for the rest of their life. Most people who become vegetarian stop being vegetarian. There's a vast universe of former vegetarians out there. And we need to make it easier, not only to become vegetarian, but to stay vegetarian. If everybody who has ever been vegetarian or vegan still were, the world would be a dramatically better place for animals. Uh, sadly, that is not the way that it works. And we need to make it easier. And one of the ways to make it easier is to create affordable, delicious food that people are accustomed to eating, that they like, and that they want to eat. And that's what we can do with cool food technology that creates animal-free protein products. Great. So, so let's let's go there. Let's just talk about the history. You know, one of the things I love about the book it reminds me of the, the writing of Tracy Kidder, um, who who wrote a book um, probably in the eighties called "The Soul of the New Machine," which was about the 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 race to invent this supercomputer. And of course, he wrote it with the hindsight of now we like they won. We know this, you know, this this company won and this is how they did it and all the problems they overcame. You're writing in the middle like we still don't know the outcome. We you know none of these companies, at least the, the um, you know, the, the clean meat companies, as opposed to the plant based analogs, none of them has a product on the market for for, you know, mass consumption. Right. Um, and yet there's like this there's a really sort of, you know, exciting story about all these individuals coming together, this person meeting that person, the, you know, the per, you know, just exciting. Um, so like for maybe we should start with like, what are the different technologies that you're that you're looking at? Uh, sure. So, you know, I am excited by those stories. So the book Clean Meat is not a very technologically heavy book. It's more about the stories of the people, why they're doing it and how they're doing it to create these companies and these technologies that will help to prevent animals from being used for food. Uh, now, in terms of like the ways to recreate the meat experience, so let's just put it this way. So you know, first of all, Howie, I just want to say like, I would love it if people were to just eat hummus and lentil soup and bean and rice burritos. Like, that would be awesome. That's honestly, that's how I eat most of the time as evidenced by the fact that I love sunshine burgers. Um, but most people want meat. Most people want to eat meat. And we just have to accept that. And so it's kind of like saying like, oh, you know, I wish that people would walk and bike more, but you know, people seem to really like driving. So let's make cars that don't run on fossil fuels. Well, okay. So there's lots of ways to produce energy without fossil fuels. There's wind there's solar, there's geothermal, there's nuclear, etc. Well, there's lots of ways to recreate the meat experience without animals. And in the same way that most people don't care where their energy comes from, they just want it. So, you know, I'm, I'm in a room right now that's lit up by a light in the ceiling. Most people, they walk in here, they flip on a light switch, they're not thinking, oh, you know, I is this light coming from wind? Is it coming from coal? Is it coming from oil? You know, like they're just thinking I want light. They just want the experience of an illuminated room. When people eat meat, they're not thinking, ah, I'm so glad an animal was slaughtered for this. They just want meat. They want that experience. And so there's really three ways so far that people have come up with to recreate the meat experience without animals. One is plant-based meat. So that's where you take crops like soybeans or peas or wheat, and you process them in certain ways that make them look and taste like animal meat. There's a second way. It's called cultivated meat or clean meat. And that's what I write about in the book, clean meat which is not taking plants, but taking animal cells and growing animal cells so that you can grow real actual animal meat without the need to raise animals. That's not yet commercialized. So uh, it's commercialized in Singapore, but it's not really meaningfully commercialized anywhere else. And so then you have a third kingdom. You talk about plants and animals. Now there's a third kingdom, fungi. 
And my own company, The Better Meat Co., relies on fungi fermentation to create the meat experience, not from plants, not from animals, but from microscopic fungi, from microbes. And so what we do is essentially take microscopic fungi, subject them to a special kind of fermentation that within hours transforms them into foods that really have the texture of animal meat, and then we can flavor it to be more like animal meat. So that is uh, the the world of animal-free meat experiences today. Maybe there'll be different techniques in the future, but for now, you you basically can go to three kingdoms, plants, animals, or fungi. And all three of them, just like coal, wind, and geo, excuse me, just like um, wind, solar, and geothermal are different ways to recreate energy without fossil fuels. These are the ways to recreate meat without animals. So let's, let's talk about the second category, the cultivated meat, since that's the, the, the topic of the book mostly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this technology was developed for like growing skin for people who'd been burned. It was just, it was a medical technology that, that really, that, you know, I guess a few people started thinking of as, hey, why can't we do this on a bigger scale? Who, who are some of the fav- your favorite characters in bringing that forward? <laughs> yeah, well, there's a lot of people who have fantasized about this. So like, quite famously, Winston Churchill in the early 1930s was writing about the possibility of clean meat. Um, but even before that, there was a French chemist in the 19th century who was predicting that um, by the year 2000 that we would be eating meat grown without animals. And so um, if you look, though, like the really what I who I would call like the father of this movement is a guy named Willem van Eeuwen. And he was a he was a Dutch scientist who uh, was really the first person to figure out that you could like grow muscle outside of a, of a body. And so he saw this in medical training where muscle would grow and, and other people, other cardiologists have commented on this, that, you know, when you're rehabbing somebody who's had a heart attack, that you're basically growing new heart muscle tissue. And so the question is, can that happen outside of the body? And uh, Willem van Eeuwen figured out that you can do this. And, you know, he was a really interesting guy. He was a Dutchman and his daughter, Ira van Eeuwen, is actually very involved in this movement still. So Willem has now passed away, but his daughter is highly involved in the movement today to carry on her father's legacy. But um, he was a POW in a Japanese camp during World War II. And he was very interested in how to produce food like out of thin air because he was starving so frequently there. And so for his whole life, he was like really concerned about how you produce food with very few resources. And so he got the first ever patent anywhere in the world on a method of growing meat without animals. Then you fast forward to around um, uh, just around the turn of the century and some scientists funded by NASA in New York state ended up growing goldfish meat outside of a goldfish. And they were doing this not for, uh, use on Earth, but they want to figure out, you know, if you're going to go to space and you're going to be going in long distance cosmic tourism, you know, you're not bringing Noah's Ark in tow with you, right? Like, you're not going to carry around fish and cows and pigs. Like, if you want meat in space, you're going to grow it. And so they were thinking, can you grow real meat? And they did. They succeeded in growing real actual fish outside of a fish. They grew a goldfish meat, actually, interestingly enough. And then it wasn't until 2013 when Mark Post, who is a, another Dutch scientist, debuted the world's first burger that is grown from cow cells rather than from cows, uh, rather than from cow slaughter. And Mark uh, was funded by Sergey Brin, the Google co-founder who wanted to kickstart this movement to create meat without animals. And he debuted it. And that really, the fact that he grew a burger and debuted it and got worldwide media attention 
that got a lot of folks eyeballs, including my own, who had thought, you know, in the past, this is kind of like an academic research, maybe it's something for space exploration. Um, but it wasn't something that was like commercializable for humanity today. And Mark Post did more than maybe anybody to popularize this movement and uh, inspire a lot of people to get involved in it. So he now has gone on to create his own company called Mosa Meat, and he inspired numerous other companies to be founded and that have raised vast sums of money to try to bring to the world the first slaughter-free meat and to realize the dreams of people like Winston Churchill and Willem Van Eelen and others who have thought maybe there's a better way Maybe there's a better way to produce meat. Right. And for, you know, first, I just want to say that probably eating goldfish meat is like, you know, 10, 10, 10 seconds later, you can't remember having eaten it. Ah, very good. Like, That's pretty funny. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I will say that is a myth about them. So they've actually have shown that goldfish actually have much better memories than 10 seconds. But it is a it is a pervasive myth that humans have about them. Um, huh. So, yeah, it's a uh, it's a. Um, I, I believe that we think that because we feel we don't want to feel uncomfortable keeping them in like these barren little bowls that they're kept in. You know, what a horrible life to be in like isolation in a tiny bowl where you're essentially just a living decoration. Um, but anyway, check out some really interesting, uh, some really interesting things about goldfish memory oh, cool. because the science shows that they actually have much longer memories. <laughs> I will look that up. I, I, I may just have... Uh... Grown, grown my ethical capacity to good, uh, good. To I'm glad. I, I'm glad that that has come out of this podcast. <laughs> I hope, <laughs> I hope some listeners do too. Um, I mean, it's it's you know, it's just interesting as I self reflect how easy is it it is for me to believe that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, I would feel a lot better if it was true. Then they would every ten seconds not remember the uh, the horrible conditions that they're living in. Right. But the, you know, the other thing I find interesting and, you know, is you found a three hundred and thirty dollar hamburger like a harbinger of a future. Yeah. Well, like, yeah. I, I, just to be I clear, would look at. Yeah. Just yeah. just to be clear, three hundred and thirty thousand dollar hamburger. Oh, that's, that's not what I um, yeah. that's what I meant to yeah. say. Okay. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. Third of a million. Three hamburgers <laughs> yeah. for a million. Yeah. In yeah. Your, in yeah. Your pack. That's right. Like that you would be able to look at that and say, oh, that's a harbinger of the future. Um, like I wouldn't have. And I wonder, is it, you know, were you like looking at the history of tech? Yes. You know, you said the first iPhone was almost 3 million to produce the first one and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Like to me, like look at the, the first computers, like think about what a, what a computer today would have cost 20 years ago. Um, if you could have even gotten it at all, even if you had been a billionaire, you might not have been able to get anything like that. So um, yeah, absolutely. The fact that there's an outrageously high price for the very first prototype ever made meant nothing to me. Um, and I think anybody else who follows the trajectory of technology, I mean, e even just look at what SpaceX has done for rockets, you know, think about how much cheaper it is per kilogram of mass transported into space now because of SpaceX, because they figured out ways to make rockets reusable, things that nobody was even trying to do before that they have succeeded in, in bending the cost curve on space travel. So, um, the, the, you know, the examples go on and on and on. But my hope is that there will be like a Moore's Law type effect with clean meat as well, that it keeps getting cheaper and cheaper every year. And that does seem to be happening. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because the books from 2018 were, were for you, I, I assume you worked on it mostly 2016 and 17. So we may be five, six years on from a lot of the things you wrote. Yeah. And I was wondering, you know, is like AI, you know, AI has made tremendous strides in that time. Are we you know, getting better at 
getting faster at getting the stuff to market? Um, yeah, there is a lot of machine learning that's going on now to help improve uh, the cost of these products. The biggest barrier to marketing them, though, right now is not so much cost, but rather regulation. So, as I mentioned, the only place in the world that has authorized the sale of clean meat is Singapore. And that means there's like 200 other countries out there, including the United States, that it's illegal to sell. Like if, even if you had a factory and you could produce it at, at price parity with meat, um, that would be great. But you just aren't there. Like you can't sell it. And so hopefully the FDA and the USDA will change that soon. And you do have companies like uh, Mosa Meat and Eat Just and um, Upside Foods that are building these pretty big facilities to produce um, cultivated meat. I will say, though, just as like a dose of reality, that plant-based meat has been on the market for decades, and it still is not a price parity with meat. Billions of dollars of investment have been made. Still not price parity with, with conventional commodity meat. It's barely competitive with like organic grass-fed meat, actually. So you, you have to keep in mind, I think, that while you know, these foods will probably be sold at over the cost of meat for some time, and that's a real problem for helping them. You know, Right now, we call it alternative protein. And I think it'll remain as alternative protein as long as it's being sold as so much more than conventional meat. Yeah. So what's the limiting factor? Is it scale? If you, know, if you suddenly could convince everyone to switch, would it become cheaper? Or are there just, you know, one of the things I loved about the book is that you go into a little bit of the detail, like what are, what are what's the process? Yeah. What's holding back? You know, we need this serum. We have to come up with, with non-animal based serum. Like what's, yeah. what's holding back plant-based meat uh, from achieving that kind of parity. Yeah, well, it's interesting you mentioned serum because that's actually one of the things that has changed uh, since I wrote the book. So when I wrote Queen Meat, um, you know, animal-free serum was extremely expensive. And so it's hard to, and animal-based serum is also very expensive. I mean, it just makes it very hard to grow animal cells um, cheaply. Uh, however, major innovations have come about. Nearly none of these companies continue to utilize um, animal-based serums and the animal-free serums are becoming cheaper. So that's one change. But on plant-based meat, um, the problem is, you know, you think about like a, a Beyond Burger, it's made out of peas. Well, we know peas are cheaper than beef. So why is a Beyond Burger so much more expensive than beef? And I don't mean like 20 or 30% more expensive. I mean, sometimes like two or 300% more expensive. Um, and so there is a... Um, this question, why? And you know, one of the reasons is you're not using the whole pea. You know, a pea is about 20% protein. And so when you use a whole pea, you're getting, you know, 100% of the pea and therefore 80% of it is not protein. Well, Beyond really just wants that pea protein. So they have to strip out the fiber, strip out the fat, concentrate it down into a pea protein powder. And that pea protein powder is a lot more expensive than peas because it took a lot of peas to make it. And then you have to texturize it. So a pea protein powder is not textured like animal meat. It's high protein, but it's not textured like animal meat. And so you got to texturize it through a very expensive process, sometimes known as twin screw extrusion. It's basically a fancy way of saying like lots of pressure, lots of heat, and it transforms the molecular structure of that protein to make it more animal-like. And that is a very expensive thing to do, to do all those steps that I just mentioned. Now you're talking that star ingredient of the product is just more expensive than beef, as an example, and way more expensive than chicken, which is much cheaper than beef. So that's like one example. So then you think, okay, well, would increasing demand for pea protein help to you know get more of it in, on the market and therefore prices will come down? Sadly, the opposite has happened. Um, because of drought and increased demand, pea protein costs have gone up, not down. 
in recent years. In fact, in the last year or so, pea protein prices have literally more than doubled. So like you just look at like the, the of course, meat, meat prices are also going up. So that's a, you know, another factor to consider, but not as much, not going up as much as pea protein has gone up. So uh, this is one of the reasons why I am particularly enthusiastic about microbial proteins, like microscopic fungi, because I don't think you have that same problem that I've just been talking about. Um, but it takes a lot to scale that up. It's very capital intensive to do. And so there's a lot of barriers that are, are facing this industry right now in terms of going from being a niche product that is less than 1% of the volume of meat right now uh, to being something that is more mainstream. E even if you look at the milk aisle, so, uh, you know, plant-based milks have grown a lot. You know, 15 years ago, they were like 1% of the fluid milk market. Today, they're about 15% of the fluid milk market. Huge cannibalization there. And so then, you know, look at plant-based meat, and it's still at less than 1%. It's not at 15% or 10 or 5%. It's at less than 1% of the total um, meat market. And so it's just going to take a long time. It'll take a long time mm -hmm. to get from here to there, basically. Gotcha. So let's, let's talk about the uh, Better Meat Company. All right. So first, first of all, what, like, what tipped you towards, you know, going into business as opposed to like you're hanging out with cool people, you're traveling around the world, you're friends with everybody. Now you've got kind of a stake. Now you now some of your friends are sort of competitors. Like what? Yeah. What was the day where you decided I'm gonna I'm gonna do this? Um, I, I was thinking about writing another book, and so. Um, uh, you know, I had written a book about the history of the cellular agriculture meat movement, and I was thinking about doing a history of the plant-based meat movement, like ancient China to the impossible whopper. Um, so I was thinking, like, you know, how do you how do you tell that story about the history of plant-based meat going all the way back to ancient China? Um, and I just thought, you know, is that's what I want for my life. You know, you describe queen meat as being written from like a journalistic point of view, which is what I did. Um, one of the things that I realized was that the people I was writing about didn't have that much experience beforehand. You know, they were not seasoned entrepreneurs. They were not, uh, you know, necessarily um, great scientists. You know, like look at, um, you know, you look at um, Eat Just and, you know, it's like one of the biggest cultivated meat companies on the planet today and their CEO had no business experience, no scientific background whatsoever, and yet he was succeeding. Uh, if you look at Perfect Day, a company that is creating real cow proteins, cow dairy milk proteins without cows, you know, this is started by two guys who were 22 years old. They had never even met per in person. They met via an online uh, like video chat, and they decided to start a company. Well, fast forward to today in, in 2022, and their company is now valued at $1.5 billion. They have lots of products in the market, and they've commercialized real dairy proteins without cows. It's amazing. Uh, and these guys are basically like 30 years old now, still running this company. So the point that I'm making is that the reason that held me back from starting my own company was thinking, well, what do I have to offer? You know, like I didn't have any finance experience or business experience. I worked in the nonprofit sector my whole life. And I thought, geez, you know, these people are doing it. Maybe I could too. And so rather than continuing to write about these people who I thought would solve this problem, as I said earlier, I decided to become one. And so the Better Meat Co. Uh, is pioneering a different method of recreating the meat experience, not plants, not animals, but fungi. And I think that in the end, this is going to prove to be the most economical way to do it. Um, but time will tell. Time will tell. Uh -huh. And how did you hit upon fungi? Like when you're looking around the the whole, you know, you you have this book, you know, gives you a really broad picture of the whole universe. Yeah. So I'm assuming that like your decision was based on some really strong strategic um, considerations. Very much so. Um, I'm very enthusiastic about the cultivated meat industry. I think it's wonderful. 
at the same time, even the most optimistic projections show it many years away from making a dent in the problem. And so while I think of this as kind of like digital film in the 1990s, you know, like in the future, this is going to be really big. But for now, we're relying on other technologies. So I thought, well, I, I think that there's got to be a thing that we can do that can actually come to market quickly and scale fast. And so it's a lot, um, it's a lot lower technological hurdles to ferment fungi than to uh, grow animal cells in a culture. And so um, I just thought we could do this for cheaper. And that's why like, it's really cost driven that I thought we could uh, quickly scale and have a lower price point um, than commodity animal meat. Gotcha. So who, you know, you say, okay, I want, I, I want into that part of the industry. Like, who do you, how do you know who to trust as a scientist? <laughs> like, like a lot of this, I was reading, like people were like, I can't believe, you know, is this real? I've got to go see the thing. How do I even know? Like, what, how did you go about kind of just doing due diligence to say, well, this is a real thing and this yeah. person knows what they're talking about? Um, well, I am not the brain of our company. I'm the face of our company. I'm not the brain of our company. What I've tried to do is to surround myself with people who are much smarter than I am and people who know a lot more than I do. And so while my mission is very clearly one that is based on what I think will help animals and the planet the most, um, you know, it's not necessarily what the scientists in this field are seeking to do. Like these are people who, you know, became microbiologists, not because they had a passion to help animals, but because they love microbiology or they love science or whatever the case is. And so I didn't have some litmus test about like personal ideology. What I wanted to do is find out who are the best microbiologists, who are the best uh, fungal experts and start talking to them and started interviewing them and talking about like what we could do that they thought would actually be cost effective. Um, you know, it's one thing if you're growing, if you're doing fermentation products, let's say for pharma purposes, like, you know, insulin, which is grown via fermentation for uh, diabetics, but people are paying, people are willing to pay a lot for insulin because obviously it's a, it's something that they need for their life. Um, people aren't willing to pay as much for food. Obviously you need food for life, but there's a lot of cheap food out there. So uh, people are willing to spend a lot on pharmaceuticals in a way that they're not willing to spend a lot on food. And so if you take people who have been working in the biotech industry and who have a mindset that it's going to be expensive, that's one thing. But if there's people who think, you know, actually we could invent some new technology that would make this way cheaper. Those are the type of people we want to work with at the Better Meat Co. So we now employ a, a team. So, you know, we're still a small company. We only have 20 people working here full time, but uh, we employ really smart uh, scientists, chefs, microbiologists, fermentation experts and uh, engineers and more who are uh, pioneering technology to continually reduce the cost of um, creating a, a meat type product. Gotcha. And did you have a seed funder who's, you know, imprimatur, who's $5,000 or whatever, told everyone else, oh, let's take a look at this. This is real. Yeah, $5,000 sadly wouldn't go that far in this field, but um, we did have a seed round that was primarily uh, people who I already knew in the animal welfare philanthropic space. You know, these are people who are donating a lot of money to animal charities because they want to get a return, a social return on their investment, right? They're, they donate to an animal charity for not a financial return, but a social return. And so if they're given a chance to uh, part with their money and not just to get the social return of helping animals, but also the possibility of a financial return, it's a pretty attractive option. And so uh, many folks who I've been friends with for a long time, people who uh, you know, I had uh, long-time relationships with, uh, were the initial funders of our company. So we did a pre-seed round 
uh, we raised about $1.6 million for that and we started hiring people. And then we ultimately did a seed round and we've uh, continued to raise money since then. Uh, now uh, our investments are primarily coming from like venture capital funds um, rather than from individual philanthropists. Um, but we continue to, um, you know, have investors from a wide array of society and a wide array of interests and, and motivations. Great. So what what are you producing now? And assuming that your wildest dreams come true, what what will you be contributing to the world in the future? Uh, so we've created the largest pilot plant or really the largest North American fermentation plant for mycoprotein that's for fungi protein. And we are so it's a pilot plant, but our, our fermenters, you know, they go up, you know, three stories into the air and they are producing a lot. And we're partnered with companies like Hormel Foods and others to whom we sell these products. Um, but we can't produce millions of pounds. And ultimately, we need to be able to produce billions of pounds and we can't even produce millions. We can only produce thousands right now. And so our goal is to take what we've built here in Sacramento, which is kind of like a Willy Wonka of meat type factory. And it looks like a beer brewery. You know, you walk in and it's just like, you know, uh, lots of stainless steel. And you, the, the vision that we have is to scale this up and have fermenters that don't just go up like three stories, but we go up like 10 stories into the air and have like a, a truly scaled commercial plant that creates a river of our microprotein to flow through the food industry into the mouths and stomachs of billions of consumers around the world who would otherwise be eating animals. So that's the goal. The goal is to create this river of inexpensive, delicious ingredient that can displace animals in the food system to the most extent possible. Okay. And and so the the product itself is fungus, right? It's the it's like the fungi aren't the the um the factories making other proteins. It's not like That's right. you know so so you're like feeding potatoes or other other raw materials to fungus. How is this different from like a giant like white button mushroom farm where you have your substrate, you have your spores and then you get a a fungus product? Yeah. So um, 90 we think of fungus and mushroom as being synonym. Uh, however, 90 percent of fungi species do not produce mushrooms at all. They never produce a mushroom. And so um, you can grow mushrooms like white button mushrooms in, a, in a, basically a farm, like an indoor farm. And what we do is also indoor agriculture, but instead of keeping them like on a solid substrate like sawdust, what we do is we keep them in a liquid fermentation. So that's why I say it looks like beer brewery. So you take like a microscopic fungi and you can subject it to a liquid type of fermentation that causes the fungi, again, never produces mushrooms, but it creates a meat-like structure. And it's like a canvas on which you can paint whatever you want. And so that meat-like structure ends up uh, creating uh, everything that we make. So from crab cakes to burgers to steaks and chicken breasts and more. Gotcha. And how does it compare? Because one of the one of the big, you know, excitements in the book is the, you know, the taste reveal, right? Whether yeah, it's, yeah. you know, the, the investor, uh, I think Selena Chow in, in, you know, saying, oh, this milk tastes disgusting or, whether the, you know, <laughs> yeah. the, the food taster from Fast Company saying, oh, this is like a decent burger. Yeah. Like, what does what your food taste like and, and, and what do people think it is? Yeah, I think it does an extremely good job of mimicking the meat experience. So um, it's not actual meat. It's not made from animal cells, but it's made from fungi. But um, we make it, it we, we produce it in such a way that despite it being a whole food, it's not fractionated, extracted, purified, nothing like it's just straight out of the fermenter. It has a meat like texture. 
and then you can flavor it and make it taste like beef or like chicken or like crab, et cetera. And so it is good. It's really good. And it's so good that companies like Hormel really enjoy working with it. Gotcha. And you, it, when did you make the decision to be B2B instead of, you know, making your own products and trying to get them on supermarket shelves? Uh, you know, I think about like we could create a CPG brand. And so we'd be competing. Say, say, what, say what CPG yeah. is for people. Who yeah, know. sorry. So, yeah. So uh, what you reference B2B is business to business. So like an ingredients company that, you know, you don't see their product name on the shelf, but their ingredients are in the products that are on the shelf. That's what we do. Uh, there are other companies that are like, you know, Beyond Meat and Impossible, which are called CPG brands or consumer packaged good brands. And basically, we could create our own CPG brand. This is make Better Meat Co. Burgers, Better Meat Co. Steaks, et cetera. And at that point, you know, we're essentially competing with Morningstar and Gardein and Beyond and Impossible. And frankly, I don't know. I think it does a lot for the world for us to compete with them. Like, I don't think it does a lot for us uh, to take away market share from Beyond or from Impossible. What I want to do is offer ingredients to the big food companies, to the Hormel's, to the Conagra's, to the Purdue's, to the Tyson's, uh, to the, you know, the... the um, uh, I'm just trying to think of another like huge food brand, the Unilever's and let them use fewer animals. Like those are the companies that are using all the animals now. So let them use fewer animals and put this into their products so that they can actually have a much lower footprint on the planet and on animals. Gotcha. And you you mentioned you're, you're in Sacramento. You have your one Willy Wonka facility is this going on globally as well? Are there startups in Asia and Israel and Europe that are also trying to do some of this? Yes. So there is a race right now to, um, you know, perfect these methods, both in plant-based and cultivated and in fermented to um, produce the best products. And it's going on in Asia and Europe and Latin America and North America, Australia, and, and so on. Mm. Gotcha. Yeah, even, the... yeah, even in the Middle East now. I mean, Israel, of course, is in the Middle East and is doing a lot on this. But even in uh, non-Israeli um, Arab countries, there is now uh, activity on this uh, on this as well. Gotcha. I don't know how much time you have. We've gone over the time you've you've given me. I don't yeah, know sa couple sadly, I got people who are like knocking in who I had meetings with starting 17 minutes ago. But that's OK. Well, we can conclude and then I'll be good. Sorry. OK, well, I, I'll stop asking questions then. But I, yeah. I do. I do yeah. have more. It's been fascinating. I feel I, I looked yeah. at, the, at the timer of the recording at, at like 43 minutes. and I'm like, oh, gosh, we just started. Oh, no, so I'm sorry. There's, yeah, there's a lot yeah. to talk about. And, and I love the way you're looking at this. And I feel like I am a more sort of optimistic and solution oriented person from, from having read the book and had this conversation. Oh, that's cool. No, I appreciate that, Howie. That's all that matters to me is like, what are the effective solutions? I think it's very easy to diagnose the problem. There's lots of people who can effectively do that. Much harder is to prescribe a solution. And um, too often people think of the diagnosis as the solution. They think if we just tell people about the problems of what we do to animals, that's going to change it. That's the solution. Diagnosis is not the solution. We have to prescribe solutions that actually are realistic and work. And if there was a if there was something that worked better than this, I'd gladly go devote my life to that. Sadly, I'm just not aware of what it is. Uh, to my knowledge, uh, food technology seems to offer the best promise to liberating animals. Um, but I'm open minded. 
Um, maybe I'm, maybe there's something else I haven't thought of, something I'm not paying attention to. If so, I'd love to hear from people. Get in touch with me. Uh, if you go to bettermeat.co, again, that's bettermeat.co, you can get in touch with us. I'd love to hear from you. See what you think. Uh, if you're interested in reading the book, I hope you will. Uh, you can buy Queen Meat anywhere. It's available on Amazon, but it's also available. Uh, you can go to the book's official website, queenmeat.com. And so you can get in touch with me through that website too, from either queenmeat.com or bettermeat.co. Uh, and I'd love to hear if you have ideas that might even do more good, bring them on. I'd love to hear them. I'd love to hear them. Hopefully they're less expensive than what we're doing. <laughs> All right. Well, um, yeah, I'll invite people to go to go do that. I'll drop the links in the show notes. Thank and you. Paul, thank you so much. I'm just uh, I'm, you know, I'm optimistic. Like it's it's good. hard. It's 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 a it's a big hill for me to climb to be optimistic these days. And you've helped me All do right. it. I'm so glad, Howie. I hope that translates into something good for the world. So it's great to meet you. Thanks so much. And thanks for all you're doing to help promote a kinder world as well. I really do appreciate it. Right on. We'll end with a little fist bump. <laughs> all right. All right. Thanks, Paul. Take care. <laughs> Bye. All right. For the show notes with links to the book and to Paul's business, you should check out plantyourself.com slash 523, 523. Let's see what's going on. Garden news, blueberries. Mia's picking about a gallon a day. Uh, and we're leaving a bunch on the, we are. She is leaving a bunch. I tried to pick blueberries. I actually went out the other morning, Sunday morning, and I, I, I got like a, a quart and I brought it in. And, you know, my colorblindness means that I got quite a few not quite ripe berries. So um, too bad. Can't, can't do that job. So I got to do other things in the garden instead. Um, squash is, is pretty much wound down, just getting one or two small ones. But now we're getting these giant Armenian cucumbers, kind of the, the size of uh, of my, uh, what's, what's the bone between the wrist and the elbow? The, is that the humerus? There's two of them there. <laughs> oh, radius and ulna. I remember now from massage therapy school. Uh, it's the, the length of my, of my ulna, <laughs> getting these, these, these giant um, cucumbers. Um, and basil's coming in. And of course, the mint is everywhere. And we actually have some figs on our fig tree that may actually turn into fruit. Um, our neighbors, Gary and Lane, gave us a bunch of figs from their uh, garden this morning. So uh, communally, we have, a, we have a great garden. Uh, also, because I, I ran three times last week, and I was really happy about that, but my foot started hurting, and I realized I'm not ready for road running. So I went and took the BCS two-wheel tractor out into the back meadow to uh, make a path. Um, so that I could uh, sort of go jogging and, and running there, maybe a sort of a quarter mile. So, you know, do, th do that a few dozen times and I can get my five or six miles in. And within about 20 minutes, it had blown a tire. And if you have ever tried to change a tire on a tractor, you know why I spent the next four hours like sweating and grunting with my back in very unpleasant positions. And it turns out that when we got the old inner tube off and the new one in, that somehow... Uh, I puncture that one as well. So we're just taking it to the tire place. So I guess that's the uh, garden news and movement news. Um, did have a, a good ultimate practice on Saturday and getting ready and now in like nine or 10 days for nationals. So it's time to start tapering a little bit for that. 
Um, that's about all I got for now. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Reidenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willreidenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Rickney Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzet, Jeanette Bennett, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chawley, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayad, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olikoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Leenan, Patty D. Martino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarit Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi. Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends. 